Hello and welcome friends to the to our SBT Sunday teaching and of course without Miss Chokey reminding me I forget to spotlight myself for everyone for anybody that doesn't want to see me plastered across their screen you can go to gallery view at the top of your screen and okay now we're in good shape sorry about that folks Oh, my name is Venerable Tarpa. Before we begin, let's take a moment to appreciate our wonderful and handsome community gathered here today. Today, I feel fortunate to sit as a member of this kind community in the safety and security of like-minded friends, sharing this present moment with others dedicated to the cultivation of goodness. Today, I'm grateful for the direction and support that this community provides, a community worthy of my time and commitment, a community where my efforts have meaning, purpose, and are appreciated. Today, I'm thankful for this community of awakening, a place to gain the knowledge and skills to improve my life, a family, a home, and a sanctuary for all of us seeking refuge from the storm. And let's remember, as conscientious practitioners, we must recognize our responsibility to the world to strive to live skillfully while helping others to do the same, to strive to live in balance and harmony with nature and others, to strive to gain mastery over our minds and embody our true benevolent nature, to expand our hearts and minds, transcending our shared human limitations, to not intentionally harm sentient life or our planet, to maturely accept and embrace the reality of our situation while still striving to improve it. Again, welcome everybody to our Sunday teaching. Today we're going to be exploring some common misconceptions about Buddhism. So I thought uh, this is our last Sunday teaching before we start our Skillful Living teaching series. So I, I thought we would do something a little bit lighter, and I'm not sure how much lighter this is. Buddhism tends to be a bit of a heavy topic, but nevertheless, I thought uh, this would be a fun uh, video to do. Um, so I just at random picked about what I thought were the probably the 10 most uh, misconceived ideas about Buddhism. Some of these uh, I think many of you might know about, other ones I, I'm hoping are going to be uh, pretty interesting. And like always, I'm going to try to uh, deliver this from a secular Buddhist point of view and to give you lots of information to make up your own mind. You know, here at SBT, we're not interested in getting across uh, a, a single point of view to everybody to, to, to take and believe in. Uh, instead, we do the opposite. We like to share you all the, share with you all the different various views of things and let you yourself decide what you believe in. Uh, and you're going to you're going to see why as I paint this picture at just kind of how um, how a lot of what we take for Buddhism isn't as certain as we think it is. Okay, let's start with number one. A drum roll, please. I feel like I'm doing a David Letterman top ten countdown thing, but we're going to start at the top and work our way down now. the uh, The first one is: Is Buddhism a religion? And oh, give me one second. I want to put this up here. Um, so now this is one of the questions that everybody always gets. And of course, you probably see it plastered all over the Internet. Everybody debating what is Buddhism? Is it? And of course, this question comes up because of the fact that Buddhism doesn't entertain the idea of a creator God. 
Now, according to the Buddha, through all of his searching, he never found any being that was responsible for creating the universe. So therefore, Buddhism doesn't entertain the idea. And isn't religion kind of founded around the idea of creator gods that create things, you know, all the various religions. Um, but the question becomes a little bit difficult because there are the idea of deities in Buddhism, just not creator deities. So some would say that Buddhism isn't a religion, but more of a philosophy or way of life. And that has a great argument as well. Um, and some would even say that Buddhism is more of a, uh, an early form of psychology. Uh, but uh, in the Buddha's words, I have, ah, here we go. This is from one of my texts. From the Buddha's words, my teaching is not a philosophy. It is a result of my own direct experience. My teaching is a means of practice, not something to hold on to or to be worshipped. My teaching is like a raft used to cross a river. Only a fool would continue to carry the raft around after already reaching the other shore of liberation. So in this quote, which to be honest with you, we're not even sure if it's, a, if it's an actual Buddhist quote. Um, my teaching is not a philosophy. It's a result of my own direct experience. So this isn't something that he sits around and ponders and, and, and invents. Uh, his teachings, which we call Buddha Dharma, um, are, are direct, come directly from his direct experience. Um, and then he goes on to say, my teaching is a means of practice, not something to be held on to or to be worshipped. So in this sense, he's saying, my, my teachings aren't a religion, they're a means of practice. And then lastly, it says, my teaching is like a raft used across a river. This is a common analogy in Buddhism, uh, which we saw when we were studying the Dharmapada. Only a fool would continue to carry the raft around after already reaching the other shore of liberation. And they talk about Buddhism being a raft as being a vehicle. And when, you, when we talk about the Mahayana, the Theravada, uh, the Yanas is actually a, a, the word for a vehicle, a raft. Um, and so the idea is from this shore of unenlightenment, we take the raft across the river to the other shore of enlightenment. So when he says that his teachings are a raft used across a river, he's implying here that Buddhism itself isn't the goal. Buddhism itself is merely giving us enough information and enough direction so that we can become enlightened. But once we're enlightened, this vehicle that we use to get here, we set, we set adrift, we no longer use. And so there's many interpretations by many people on this, but uh, I think Thich Nhat Hanh had some beautiful thoughts on it. And so the idea is that the, this vehicle isn't showing us uh, an ultimate truth. It's giving us enough information and truth so we can achieve enlightenment, right? So that's a very interesting thing to ponder, isn't it? When we think about Buddhism, and we're often talking about the Four Noble Truths and the Two Truths and the, and the Three Universal Truths, we're always talking about truth. But in a sense, we're not talking about ultimate truth. 
we're talking about uh, you know lesser truths here and um so um it's an interesting way to look at the dharma and it, it creates a little bit of distance there and uh, and it creates quite the quite an agnostic view of it all right though that we're getting information everything but the final ultimate view is outside of buddhism it's something to be experienced directly once we reach the other shore so now i wanted to share something else with you so this is a beautiful quote i don't remember where i got this quote from but i've had it for a long time it's in uh it's in a great deal of my text it's in tibetan buddhist essentials and um like always i'm always trying to validate material i use because sometimes you're never quite sure where it comes from after 30 years of study i know a bunch of stuff that i have no idea the sources they're just there um but what's interesting is uh there's a great website called fake buddha quotes has anybody has anybody seen it it's it's awesome and but nevertheless it's another thing that shows us just how many of these uh quotes that you read on facebook all these memes were never spoken by the buddha and um, I'm, I'm curious if this is one of those, because I'm really having problems finding the origins of it. But it does point to uh, uh, a great deal of information that can be found in the Dharmapada. Uh, I forgot what the quote in the Dharmapada was. Maybe I have it. I don't think I have it here. But it's a, a bit lesser than this. Let me see if I have it in my notes. I don't. But uh, nevertheless, uh, I think it still really uh, is a nice, uh, nice takeaway from the Buddha's, uh, the, uh, the Buddha's uh, teachings. I don't think anybody could argue with this. It seems to be a collection of things taken from different places. So um, in a sense, then we say, well, what is the Buddha's teaching? It's not philosophy. It's not religion. What is it? And the simple answer, it's Dharma. Dharma is a, a, a Hindu word, an ancient Indian word that has many different meanings from truth to, to teachings to uh, code of living and honor and things like that. But generally, we think of the word Dharma, we think about spiritual teachings. Um, and when we, when we take refuge in the Buddhism, of course, we have the three jewels of the Buddha, the Dharma, his teachings, and the Sangha. Um, but to be clear, I think we should be using the word Buddha Dharma because Dharma can be used for any spiritual endeavor. So Buddha Dharma is very clear. This is the Buddha's teachings. And so what Buddha Dharma means, it means it's a teaching, it's a way of life, it's a vehicle. It's a way from getting from point A to point B, right? But is it a single absolute truth? Does it contain absolute truth and the answer would be no it's giving us enough information to find that absolute truth for ourselves if there ever is such a thing as absolute truth okay let's move on to our next list so um are buddhists atheists a lot of people believe that all buddhists are atheists um so of course we have to we have to acknowledge that there's many different types of uh, Buddhism, many different traditions and schools of Buddhism with many different philosophical views. But 
it's safe to say that all Buddhists, unless they're, unless they're secular Buddhists, are not atheists. And the reason why uh, I, I uh, pointed to it a moment ago is that although there's not a creator God in any of the traditions, um, there are lesser gods or deities, um, devas uh, they use in, in, the, in Hinduism. And these are lesser gods, but none of them are responsible for the creation of the, the universe, according to Buddhism. And again, these lesser gods are still trapped in samsara themselves. So Buddhism posits six realms of existence within our desire realm. It starts at the hell realm, the ghost realm, the animal realm, the human realm, the fighting God realm, and the God realm. And but the but no matter how how high any of these people exist in this stratum, uh, they still are all trapped in samsara, where only Buddhas and very high practitioners can can make their way out of uh, out of uh, samsara, arhats, bodhisattvas. And so, um, and so, no Buddhists are atheists unless they claim to be. Of course, Stephen Batchelor comes along and writes his great book, but it was a life, you know, tales of a, a, a Buddhist atheist or something. And he's the first one to kind of coin the term. I always thought of myself as an atheist for a long time, as being a secular Buddhist, and then I realized that for me, atheism is an extreme view as much as theism is. And so I realized properly I'm an agnostic, where uh, I, I, under, I embrace the uncertainty of life, and there's many things I'll never know. And I, I don't think uh, any of us are going to know the answer to this until we pass away and visit our maker, right? And maybe, maybe when I pass away, Jesus is going to be pointing his finger at me saying, you picked the wrong one. I don't know. So we do the best we can, yeah? Um, number three, Buddhists are vegetarians. And this is untrue. In fact, the majority of Buddhists in the world are meat eaters, and in many cases, ravenous meat eaters. <laughs> um, in, in the far east, in Eastern Buddhism, which is the Mahayana tradition, we're talking China, Japan, Taiwan, um, Korea, the Mahayanas have become vegetarians, but it's it, it doesn't date back to the Buddha. It's actually quite a bit, something that was quite a bit later, especially because from the Mahayana point of view, where they're, they're so concerned with, with uh, the lives of all sentient beings and not harming any sentient being in any way and, and honoring all sentient life, that this is where vegetarianism came in. It's hard to say your Mahayana prayers, which are lovely, may all beings be happy and free of suffering. May I be reborn until all beings down to every single blade of grass is enlightened. It's hard to say that prayer while you're looking down at your plate and saying, except for this one, because this sentient being is very tasty. I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat this one. So, um, but the fact is, the Buddha was not a vegetarian, 
And I always think it's kind of odd because at the time it would have been very easy for his Sangha to be vegetarian. The Hindus or Brahmins at this time, Hindu wasn't yet a religion, the Brahmins, uh, Brahmin priests, and most of the Brahmin community were vegetarians in India. And the other religion of the time were the Jains. So you have Brahmins and Jains. The Jains uh, were and still are very, very strict vegetarians. I think maybe going as far as vegans and uh, where they're not even allowed to eat uh, roots from the ground, onions, garlic, things like that, because of sentient life that could have been harmed in the harvesting of these things. So the Jains were very strict. So it would have been so easy to, for the Buddha to just go along with that. Everyone in those, at that time is is familiar with feeding religious people with vegetarian food, but the Buddha doesn't. Now, the the reason the, the they get around this is because the Buddha and his followers were choiceless in their in their uh, needs. They went house house to house with their begging bowls, and whatever went in their begging bowls, they ate. They didn't choose, and therefore they don't get the karma of killing animals. Now. On many websites I've read uh, where vegetarians were tr are trying to kind of rewrite the early Buddhist history and say that Buddhists were, the Buddha was a vegetarian and he didn't die from eating bad pork. Uh, that word can be, that dish can be translated as wild mushrooms in another language. And it's just ridiculous because there's so much talk about it within the Buddhist scriptures. In fact, the Buddha was very clear uh, on which occasions a monk is not permitted to eat meat. And one of those is you're not allowed to eat meat if it was killed for you, things like that. Also, there's, there's uh, many commentaries on the Buddha having dialogue with Brahmins defending himself for eating meat, saying that he didn't choose it and, you know, he's practicing choicelessness. So there's no doubt at all that the Buddhists in the old days were all meat eaters, or choiceless is a is a more proper thing to say, um, and um, and even nowadays when I was in South Africa, South in uh, South Asia, uh, I couldn't be vegetarian. Every monastery that I entered, there you know every animal was accounted for on the dining room table. They were all there, and and they would. If I was running late to something, they would set food aside for me and it would all be meat. And so I would practice choicelessness myself and eat what was uh, given to me. Um, but nowadays, more and more, the whole Buddhist world is becoming vegetarian. Tibetans were never vegetarians. They were meat eaters. Um, and uh, I remember defending the Tibetans by, with it and saying, well, the Tibetans didn't have very good agriculture and, you know, they had to survive. And I remember saying that around one of my teachers, my Tibetan teachers, and my Tibetan teacher says, shook, shook, shakes his head and says, that's not true. He says, we could be vegetarians when we're in retreat in the mountains. We eat nothing but vegetarian food for years, 10 years. And I said, then why don't you, why do you eat meat? And he says, oh, because it's delicious. And I'll never forget that. It really changed the way I thought of, of the soul. Not everybody's an angel, right? But since that time, the Dalai Lama has, uh, 
has really urged everyone, the Dalai Lama, the Karmapa, has urged everyone to move towards a vegetarian diet. Because philosophically, it's really hard to get around that, that point, that if you can survive not having anything to do with the demise of other sentient beings and their suffering, all the suffering that leads up to you, clearly that's a more compassionate way to live. And Buddhism is very much about having compassion with equanimity, compassion for all beings equally. So um, nowadays, all the Tibetan monasteries uh, uh, are required to be to, to have a vegetarian diet. So monks can still eat meat, but they have to go outside of the monastery. And as you can imagine, the restaurants are flourishing around those monasteries because those restaurants are all serving meat momos to all the monks all the time. Um, our next one is that Buddhists are all celibate. And I often will have people say that, oh, I'd like to be a Buddhist, but I don't want to be celibate. And of course, all of you know that this is only true for monastics. Um, and celibacy is, is, again, a lot of this is interpretive, but in my opinion, the reason why monks and nuns are celibate is to create a more simple and harmonious life. The Buddha didn't seem to have a problem with lay people engaging in sexuality. He, in fact, had very little to say about sexuality, only asking people to be wholesome in their pursuit. But in other traditions where there's so many rules about sexuality and, um, and, and what's healthy or not, the Buddha just didn't really say much about it. In fact, some of the things about sexuality that come into Buddhism don't come into much later. Um, often a lot of them in Tibetan Buddhism came in with Shantideva, who we think about as being this lovely Buddhist saint, but he was quite critical of people. And things like um, only having sex, they talk about the right organ in the right place at the right time of day. And of course, you can imagine what that means. That means only penovaginal intercourse, in the evening, and of course, not near any kind of Buddhist stupa or temples. But again, that all came very, very late. The Buddha was a, believed that um, that the senses, pl sense pleasures, uh, to be a very difficult part of our lives. They bring us; they're just complicated. You know, they bring us suffering. They're they're not inherently bad. It's our attachment, our grasping at them that make them make them make us suffer. We've talked about this uh, in, extensively in the past. Um, but the the acts themselves, uh, I don't think is the problem. Uh, but the Buddha did believe that sexual pleasure to be the most complex of all the sense, sense pleasures. And you could probably imagine that, that to be true, that, you know, we put so much effort into this, right? You remember just growing up in puberty and having the nerve to kiss your first other person or dating or all the things that go with it. Sexuality is a very, very complex aspect of our lives. And um, it, and so it, it really complicates the spiritual life where well, we can step aside from that and put all of our efforts into the Dharma. You could imagine that could be advantageous for those wishing to do it. 
but celibacy uh, is is just for monastics. And in SBT, we have monastic ordained and we have lay ordained. And lay ordained don't need to be celibate. We just ask them to be to practice sexuality in a wholesome way, as we do everyone. Uh, next one, number five, is Buddhism is not about detachment. <clears throat> and so, um, a common definition of detachment could be avoiding emotional involvement, right? And so this is actually not a part of Buddhism at all. Buddhism instead is about finding the proper balance between these things, or we could say the proper distance between them. I remember uh, I was at a retreat center and a young man came up to me, he's really interested in Buddhism. And, and he says to me, you know, I'd really like to be more involved, but I just can't leave my parents and friends. I just can't, I just can't abandon them. And, and he seemed to think that that was an aspect of Buddhism, that he would have to leave his friends and family and not talk to them anymore. So that's always been uh, an issue in Buddhism. Now, there is some uh, prescribed detachment in various things. The Bodhisattva's, uh, uh, list of things in the 37 vows of a of the 37 works of a bodhisattva, it lists uh, moving away from one's family and uh, hometown as part of the bodhisattva path. And, and that is an aspect uh, of the learning process. And, and as well, Buddhists will go into retreat to get away from people and noise and distraction. But it's never because we find those things uh, as, uh, as, as not, not things we desire in life, but because at some point they can become problematic. The idea is to move away from those things and work on ourselves. For a lot of Buddhists, they go out to, go out to a cave and meditate for 10 years alone. But the idea is, to, is it's to work on yourself. But in the end, the aim is always to return with the wisdom you have to benefit your, com your community and all of those people. So I always say it's a lot like med school. Like, so you have your home and you have your friends, but you want to become a doctor. Well, you have to leave your family and friends behind. You have to go to med school. So uh, you go to the other side of the country, you become a doctor. And then when, you, when you're complete, you can come back to your town and help people in a much greater way. Um, but yeah, Buddhism isn't about detachment. It's about learning how to interact with people in a more skillful way, a more balanced way. When we're grasping at our relationships with others, that is a very neurotic relationship that is not very skillful. Number six, that Buddhists believe nothing exists. I hear Buddhist teachers on YouTube all the time saying it, especially the Mahayana. So, but uh, I think generally we can say this is absolutely not true. In fact, the Buddha says that the two extreme wrong views are nihilism and externalism. Nihilism meaning that nothing exists and eternalism meaning the idea that you have a soul and you'll live forever. Um, and so, but there, there was a school that comes along from the Mahayana tradition 
called the Yogacara tradition. The Yogacara tradition is the second philosophy of, um, of the Mahayana to arise. And the Yogacara philosophy got into the philosophy of subjective idealism, was what we call that in the West, meaning that nothing really exists. Everything is just, is just mental projection. Everything exists within the mind. In fact, the, uh, the school is called the mind-only school in Buddhism. And they believe that there's no, no reality to anything. Everything is a projection of the mind. But this idea of subjective idealism that just about the whole world mingled with from time to time, everybody ends up abandoning because it's a, it's a pretty stupid philosophy. And all you have to do is stand on a street corner, with, stand just a few feet from a street corner long enough to get hit by a bus to realize, well, there are some things that appear to be real in this world, right? Uh, and so, uh, but modern Buddhism, especially even Tibetan Buddhism, has moved away from this. And uh, Tsongkhapa and Chindakirti uh, were proponents of this idea that there is an objective reality. But for many schools, including the Nyingma school in Tibetan Buddhism, and still a lot of Zen traditions really believe or not sure about the existence of reality. And they'll often say that things don't exist. And this is wrong. The Buddha, the Buddha said that things in the world were dreamlike, but he never says they are a dream. He just says their nature is a lot more ethereal than we think it is. Things aren't as substantial as we think they are, but at no time does the Buddha ever say that things don't exist. That would be nihilism. And Buddhism claims that any step in the nihilism is, is moving away from the Buddha's teachings. Number seven, how are we doing on time? Hey, we're doing good. The heavier subjects are yet to come. Uh, number six, that Buddhists believe, oh, I'm sorry. Number seven, that Buddhism is, pessim, is a pessimistic ideology only focused on suffering. I don't know where they get this one from. The first noble truth, life is suffering, right? Um, but especially when Buddhism first starts to come to the West and, um, and into Europe, the, the translators really put this pessimistic spin on Buddhism. Some of them and some, of, uh, and some other uh, uh, proponents from other religions talked about Buddhism being the most pessimistic negative ideology that ever existed. But of course, as Buddhists, we all know that this isn't true, that this was a misunderstanding of what Buddhism is. Um, and that Buddhism is focused on suffering just so far as that we can find liberation from it. And the, the great analogy is given by the Buddha himself, who talks about, he, he says, see our suffering as illness and see the see the dharma as uh i'd see the teacher as uh as the as the physician see the dharma as the medicine and see the sangha as that which helps nourish us back nurture us back to health so um the idea is that we're supposed to look at our suffering as if it's an illness and it is it's an affliction according to buddhism Buddhism uh, asserts that suffering is an, an innate part of our, 
of our nature. It's an affliction that human beings are born with. That's a big debate right there, right? That we could, we could debate that forever. But nevertheless, that is the assertion of Buddhism. That's an affliction that we can take medicine for and get better. And that medicine is the Dharma. Um, and that ties into number eight, that the Buddha said life is suffering. So nowadays in the Buddhist world, there's a lot of movement away from traditional ways of looking at Buddhism. And some of them are quite fascinating. We're going to get to some of them here. One of them is this, this idea that the first noble truth by the Buddha is life is suffering. Now, we just studied the, uh, the Wheel Turning Sutra a few weeks ago, which is where this comes from. And I'm not sure if any of you saw that the Buddha says that in it at all. In fact, what it says is, I think we have it here. Oh, sorry. In fact, sorry. Ah, oh, here we go. In fact, what the what the wheel turning sutra actually says, the Buddha says, birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering, or you could use the word dukkha for each one of these. Death is suffering. Union with what is is uh, union with what is displeasing is suffering. Separation from what is pleasing is suffering. Not to get one what wants is suffering. In brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering. So this is what the Buddha actually says, isn't it? He doesn't say life is suffering, and he doesn't say all aspects of life. He's being quite specific, isn't he? He's saying, no, these are what really make us suffering. Other than the last quote, in brief, the five aggregates subject to clinging are suffering, right? So which means to have the five aggregates represent the mind and body. So here you could say, well, to have a mind and body is to suffer. But it does say subject to clinging. So it doesn't say, because my school of Tibetan Buddhism, they would say suffering, uh, samsara is to own a mind and body, period. That is samsara. And you're not free of it until you die and you're not reborn. So the five aggregates are subject to, but subject to clinging is a, is a different term. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone does cling. And it, does, and it seems to mean that we can exist without clinging. So the five aggregates, though they're subject to clinging, it doesn't assert that that our, that our nature is to cling to them or that liberation from that clinging isn't possible, right? So I guess I'm just giving you some food for thought instead of telling you what to think on these. It's quite interesting. But I think it's still safe to say, uh, I think this, the four aggregates are still appropriate. I think they still work. Other than the small changes that we make here at SBT, the first noble truth is that unenlightened existence is suffering, right? That, you know, life is suffering. Well, that's not true. Life is dukkha. And of course, in this quote, they are listening just about everything, right? I mean, aging is suffering. Aging starts when you're born, doesn't it? Illness is suffering. We, we deal with that our whole lives. Death, 
let alone the process of death, but just leading up to death. How about just growing old and realizing your aging is great suffering, right? Union from what is displeasant is suffering. Of course, we deal with that every day, right? And not getting what we want, we deal with every day. So nevertheless, uh, I think the four, no the four Noble Truths are still fine to work with, but it's uh, important to, for us to stop saying that the Buddha said them. Okay, let's move on. The Buddha never says, oh, sorry, I got that one. Oh, how did I do that one twice? Okay. Uh, and let's move on to the last one, and that is not self. So we have this Buddhist discourse, and this is just fascinating. We have this Buddhist discourse that's been taught for thousands of years on no self. The Buddhism believes there is no self. And all of a sudden, and this comes from the Anatta Lakana Sutra, the discourse of the not self characteristic, it's called. I'm going to post that later for everybody. It's a very short sutra, it's just a page long, and, uh, and let you read it yourselves. And, um, but what's fascinating is that all of a sudden people start realizing that we've been wrong for 2000 years right and what do you how do you what do you make of that you know how do you digest that the idea that all of a sudden in the uh, 20th century scholars come along and they say oh they've been wrong for 2000 years about that and the buddha never talks about no self he talks about what what aspects of us are not self right and of course that's the four noble truths I have that here as well for y'all. So the four, the five aggregates are form, your physical body, feeling, <clears throat> the mental aspect of feeling, uh, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, uh, perception, mental formations, which some people talk about volitions, just the, the volitional actions that we do, and consciousness. And this consciousness is pertains more to sense consciousness, like the consciousness that, are, that arises from the eye reaching its object or the ear or the or the nose and the and thinking, but the consciousness of uh, of our minds. These are the five aggregates. So now in the past, what I learned in school was that these five aggregates are the components of a human being, and nothing else exists outside of these things. And so they said, well, self isn't on this list, so there's no self, right? And again, they've been teaching this for 2,000 years, but of course, this generation, we're smarter than everybody else, and we've figured it out over all those past meditators. But the funny thing is, is that modern scholars are all agreeing upon it, even from the tra different traditions. And we're talking about the great scholars, like the Theravada tradition from, uh, from uh, Bodhi, uh, I'm sorry, I'm forgetting his name. Um, but we have the great scholars in the Theravada, in the Mahayana, everybody nowadays is agreeing upon this idea. And when you read the sutra itself, it's also very clear that what the Buddha is talking about is that self cannot be found in any of these things. 
Self cannot be found in the physical form of a human being, in our feelings, perceptions, or volitional actions, or our consciousness. It exists separately from all of those. But nowhere does it say, or does it say in the sutra, that there is no self at all. It's simply letting us know that the, we, we cling to the idea that there's a self in each one of these things. Now, and, and in the sutras, what it's clear about is the Buddha is quite, quite clear about what he's talking about. When he talks about self, he's talking about an enduring quality or aspect of human beings that carries on. And the way he talks about it, it's very clear in English terms. What he's, what he's talking about is a soul, not a self, right? He's talking about this idea of soul, that when you die, you don't die, you carry on and you move, uh, you, you go to heaven or you get, you're, you're reborn. And now many people would say, well, isn't that the idea of rebirth? But not in Buddhism, in Hinduism that is, it's you that's reborn. In Buddhism, you or this identity of what you believe is you doesn't take rebirth. It, it passes away with the body and only the subtle energy, minds, or I would say the momentum or flavor of this life is what moves forward. Some would say it's your karma that moves forward, but not you. When I pass away, Tenzin Tarpa dies physically, my body, but also identity. The, the, the mind, all of that dies, but just this subtle momentum from my life, this subtle karma, this mind stream carries on into another lifetime. That's if you believe in rebirth with secular Buddhism, a lot of us don't have a rebirth, uh, don't have a belief in rebirth. But I just wanted to give you a little idea of how that process works. Um, but the Buddha doesn't deny the idea of identity. And in, in Tibetan Buddhism, they call this the mere I, merely I, me, my, right? That, that you broken down to just a single idea, I am. This is what we truly are as human beings. Of course, that, that can't exist in a vacuum. So we say, oh, we are we are identity but of course a body's required a mind's required but we're saying if we're going to break down those things and we're going to look at any one of them as saying this is this is potentially the most important aspect it's that we're that we're identity we exist as a concept and an idea but it's become it seems quite clear that that Buddhism doesn't have a problem with identity, that self as an identity exists very much. So I always interpret this as that the Buddhism, Buddhism is saying no soul. And Buddhism is one of the only religions that posits no soul. The Jains, the Brahmins, Christians, all the Judeo-Christian groups, they all posit a soul, except for Buddhism. Freaks out a lot of people really does when you talk, especially other religions, you tell them, oh, we don't believe in a soul. Oh, my goodness. That's almost as bad as not believing in God, right? But nevertheless, that is the Buddhist take on it. 
So let's, let's ponder this next point. There's a thing called the Buddha's golden silence. And uh, questions that the Buddha refused to answer, and he would instead simply remain silent on. Uh, and this became known as the Buddha's golden silence, or the 13 unanswered questions of the Buddha. So we have the 13 unanswered questions by the Buddha, and we also have the four imponderables, and I'm going to share both of those with you. This one here, and I'm going to post all this material for everybody. Um, I'm sorry, let me get rid of that. I'm all messed up here on my sharing. Oh, I'm sorry, here we go. So I'll post all of these on our social media so you can ponder them yourself. So these are the 14 questions the Buddha refused to answer. Uh, number one and two, is the universe eternal or transient? Three and four, is the universe both eternal and transient or neither eternal or transient? Five and six, is the universe finite or infinite? Seven and eight, is the universe both finite and infinite or neither finite nor infinite? Boy, they were really good at asking questions, weren't they? They didn't leave out any room for, for misunderstandings. Nine and 10, is the eye identical with the material body or different from the material body? 11 and 12, does the Buddha exist after death or perish after death? 13 or 14, does the Buddha exist and perish after death or neither exist nor perish after death? Now, these questions bring up a lot of thoughts, don't they? But remember, the Buddha just didn't, didn't answer them either way. You can, in the affirmative or the negative, the Buddha just refused to. But that didn't stop for all the traditions <laughs> for spending all their time answering them for the Buddha. And the traditions all did. They all have a <clears throat> they all have an answer to every one of these questions, you know. In great detail, to be honest. Is the universe eternal or transient? Uh, <clears throat> Hinduism, Buddhism, they have a huge story of, of the world systems and how they abide and they're destroyed and they're recon reconstructed. They have a timeline in Kelpas of how long it takes and wow. <clears throat> and then this idea is the, is the eye identical with the material body or different from the material body. The Buddha doesn't answer, but it is pretty clear that um, Buddhism asserts that the eye which is identity, <clears throat> is uh, a projection that's based upon the mind and body. So it's neither body nor mind, but neither is it different than them <clears throat> because it's dependent. It arises in dependence upon the body and mind. Because, of course, identity comes from our mind, right? Our identity of who we are is a story in our minds. It's a concept that I've been building. My parents started it, right? They gave me a name. They taught me all kinds of things. My, my community around me helped me build this identity, friends, experiences. And um, of course, it's a product of the mind. And of course, you need a body to be able to have all of those things. 
um, does the Buddha exist or perish after death? That's one that, again, all the traditions have answers for, but that's a, a very vague thing. Um, and I'd like to move to the next slide, which are the four imponderables, four observations that are not to be excessively contemplated, lest one become confused or distracted from the immediate work of attaining liberation. Number one, the Buddha range of the Buddhas, the range of powers of the Buddha, all the things they can do. You wouldn't believe the list that the traditions have made of all the powers. They can dive into the earth and back out again and create millions of images of themselves across the sky. It's just amazing. Walk on water, of course. You can't be a good prophet without walking on water. Number two, the range of meditative absorptions, the powers obtained through meditation. Number three, the results of karma. And this is the precise working of karma. And I agree, this one will drive you crazy because it's just, boy, it's a big, it's a big circle, a chicken and egg thing that comes along. So yes, we have to understand the workings of karma. Yes, it's worth uh, contemplating and under and to contemplate your own your own karma and where your actions lead, but to go too far with it all, it will drive you a bit crazy. And number four, special speculation about the cosmos. And again, the traditions have painted the most elaborate picture of the cosmos and all the beings that live in it. It's just extraordinary. But. What's important here is <clears throat> these, these last two slides, just the 14 unanswered questions and the four imponderables, shows us just how tentative, provisional, or, or unreliable our basis for understanding the Buddha Dharma really is, meaning how little we actually know and how little certainty we have of its uh, authenticity, right? All the different traditions have vastly different presentations. Yes, there's points that we agree upon. There's a basic framework, but the conclusion of those frameworks can be really, really different. And, you know, some traditions like the Theravada, they hold themselves as the most ancient and therefore the most accurate. But the fact is, is that the Theravada school isn't the earliest. We, we can go back to the school that the Theravada rose from, what they call the early Nikaya Buddhism. And Nikaya Buddhism is quite a bit different than Theravada Buddhism. There's, a, there's quite a few different conclusions or or understandings of the teachings through both viewpoints. So the Theravada themselves are just as victim to this uncertainty as the rest of us. The Theravada like to think that they're, that they're not as mystical and, as, and more grounded than the other groups. But the fact is, is that they have, they have all kinds of the same mysticism that's in there. They believe in, in, uh, in these otherworldly beings. They believe in the magical powers of the Buddha. They believe in the Buddha 
uh, uh, teaching in heaven and marching down a golden staircase to earth to bring teachings to us. Uh, they're just as full of uh, all the mysticism as the other traditions are. So no one's free of, of uh, that, that they all have uh, quite a, a speculative, ambiguous kind of nature of them all. We have to be careful at uh, at our at the level of certainty that we pretend to command, right? When it comes to this, um, and this is why uh, ultimately I think the agnostic viewpoint is the is the ultimate and best viewpoint for Dharma because it doesn't project a single viewpoint. Agnosticism recognizing the mystery that we just alluded to in these teachings. Agnosticism realizes that we have, <clears throat> the information we have is speculative at best, very ambiguous, right? That even the Buddha himself refused to answer these questions. So I think the best point of view is to be patient, you know, and to, like SBT, we try to teach the material that's the most what we would deem the most fruitful towards practice. That information, we focus on awakening and the information that leads to it, where a lot of other traditions seem to be get caught up in all of this contention. The Buddha himself called this uh, something like he called it a, a nest of thorns and nettles that people get caught up in all this theory. And I always thought that was a great picture. And um, so when we talk about the Buddha's golden silence, there's a couple ideas of why the Buddha didn't answer. The most common, and it's said that the Buddha said this to Ananda, his attendant. I don't know if I, if I found that in the sutras myself, but, but it's said that the Buddha doesn't answer because he doesn't believe people would understand the answer, that they would, they would take the answer to either extreme, but not understand uh, the spectrum in which he, he would mean the answer to be. Um, and, and then the other hypothesis is the Buddha doesn't answer because there are things that people don't need to worry about. They're not going to help those people to awaken. And in, a, in fact, it's a distraction from practice. I think I allude more to the second one. And as, as a teacher, I start to see that more and more that uh, remember the Dharmapada, there was a great quote that said, knowledge is the killer of innate, innate goodness. And of course, it just in the Dharmapada, it just says knowledge, but we would, we would have to speculate what they mean. And what I believe is like uh, knowledge, uh, knowledge that's, uh, that's overly speculative, <clears throat> like, like this, well, we get too caught up in, let's call it self-serving knowledge, right? That you want to know everything, that you need to know the answers to everything. Maybe you have a better term, but it's kind of a self-serving knowledge. It's just, it's not knowledge to help your practice. It's knowledge to, to look impressive or whatever it might be. And, um, and that is the killer of innate goodness. And you know, in my own experience, I've seen it firsthand. It's one of the reasons I moved away from the Tibetan tradition was it just seemed like nobody was awakening. And it seemed like they were really caught up in this because the Tibetan tradition of all of them is the most caught up. Man, you wouldn't believe 
the amount of inf of of, of uh, knowledge and uh, text they've generated on these questions that the Buddha didn't answer, and so kind of them to do it for the Buddha, you know, kind of like my sangha writing writing stuff for me, <laughs> you know. But um, nevertheless, you have to decide. You you each have to decide for yourselves, you know. I think one of the beauties of SBT is that our 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 approach it at starting this organization that we we didn't want to be an authority and tell everybody what to do and what to believe that we started SPT simply to support practitioners to be there as a support for everyone who's authentically working towards awakening and then of course to to support we do that by offering some some knowledge and some skills and practices and things like that but we do it in a very unbiased way as you if you've noticed all the teachings we try to teach i've told you all the different views from all the different schools right i told you what the theravada the zen thought of these issues but never once did i tell you which one was right or which one was wrong because again as an agnostic how could we deem any of them right or wrong yeah so uh that's I think that that's what's cool with SBT that we leave these as open questions and we can all have our own understandings of what they are, right? The important things that are related to practice, you know, those we try to be a bit stronger on because we have direct experience of how to practice those things. But the other, I don't know if I have the answers to them anymore. When I got out of school, I sure did. <laughs> when I when I got out of the monastery, I had an answer for everything. Anybody want to ask anything? I knew exactly the nature of reality and exactly how we exist. And and I've gotten a lot of a lot smarter since I left the monastery. And they're just a lot more open, and you just start to see the ambiguity in it all. And it's a beautiful thing. At first, it's threatening, right? As practitioners, oh no. I want to know, I want to know what is. Don't you bring in any ambiguity into my life. I want to know. But the fact is, is that uh, we just simply don't. There's a lot of mystery there. But there's also a lot that we do know. One thing that's cool about looking at all the Buddhist texts side by side in their all their original languages is that it's quite extraordinary how well preserved it was. You know, for 2,000 years, when you look at all the different versions, just amazing how much they, they kind of correspond. So, um, you know, we're in the middle of that, right? We have some great stuff. we got some great text. And the point of it is you study, but in the back of your mind, you keep an open mind. And you say, hey, maybe that's true. I wonder if that's true. I'm going to see if that's true. I mean, it, I'm going to practice it and see if it's true. <clears throat> Lastly, I wanted to just talk a second about uh, AI and how it relates to Buddhism. That sounds like a huge topic. It won't be, I promise. Uh, as I was preparing for this teaching, I, I use a lot of AI now. Be, and not because I'm lazy, 
but because I'm always afraid of being left behind by technology. When computers first came out, I was the first person on my block to own one because I was afraid that I would be left behind. So I guess it's the same thing with AI, that I want to really really embody it and, and use it. And it's a great useful tool. But I was using it for today's teaching, and I thought that this is a great application. I'll let AI dig through all the endless amount of Dharma on the web and give me some ideas. Uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, a couple of things were quite interesting. I have uh, I, I I play with about five different AI engines, and I'm always playing them against each other to see for look for accuracy. Because the fact is, is that many times uh, AI is very inaccurate, and or I think it's just generating ideas when it doesn't know an answer. It's like a little kid; it'll make one up. And I found uh, when I was preparing for this, how much one would would say they found where this text comes from, and all the other ones say no. Even the same AI, as I asked the question a few times, it quoted a different scripture, a different sutra for the origin of it. Well, one, and one of them gave the poly translation, and when I put the poly translation in other AIs, it translated the poly into a completely different statement. So I'm just sharing my experience with everybody. So AI is wonderful, and I think it's a lot of fun to play with. I have an advantage because I'm very knowledgeable about Buddhism. So I use it to help me, but I always know when it's wrong, or mo hopefully most of the time, when it, when it shares something, because it could share something from any one of the traditions. We don't know which ones it comes, comes from. But I just wanted to share that this is a, a, a danger for Dharma, that the, the AI can be sharing information that's just not true. I can't wait for the time where we have an, a Dharma AI. Imagine a, a special AI that can come through the sutras and everything else just for Dharma, and experts can keep an eye on it and make sure it's accurate. That'll be great. But in the meantime, be careful. And if you have questions about anything, post it to our Dharma chat, and I can look it over for you as well. Does anybody have any questions or comments or insights? <clears throat> Were there any misconceptions I didn't get to? Ms. Tashi, I think. Oh, my brain. Yeah, it's me. <laughs> my, my whole, my brain just went through this whole thing because I, my brain likes to make connections. So I started connecting like the I, is that the id, is that the mind, which we don't really know what the mind is. And is so is that kind of all along that same spectrum? And well, if, you've, that's, you've, yep. if that's the case, couldn't the soul be just another word for the mind or the essence or the, you know, if maybe that's what the soul is, is that essence. And since those are all questions, I could answer them all the same way. Maybe, because we Thank don't you. really know. Buddhism, of course, says no. Um, but okay. you're also picking terms from different ideologies. The id comes from philosophy, comes from Freud. Um, and even in Buddhism, like the Nyingma school posits this really kind of cool model. I'm often wondering if I'd like to use it. They talk about a big mind and a small mind. The Buddha doesn't. Oh. But they talk about the the small mind as being your everyday mind, and the big mind is you know, within meditation and 
but that, but it, it isn't quite accurate. You only do have one mind. It's just a mind that either, either is afflicted or not. Yeah. But, uh, and, and equally, I'm just getting ready to, uh, to finish up our uh, Secular Buddhist Essentials text. And equally, I'm wondering what I'm going to be writing. And I think what I'm going to end up writing is what I'm sharing here, just a lot of questions back to the reader. I think the greatest thing I can do is just show the ambiguity of it all and say, well, this, this, you know, SPT is this thought, but we're not sure if that's right. You know, there's something wrong with the idea that, here's an example, Tsongkhapa comes along with the Giluk school, 15th century, and he says, oh, I finally figured it all out. And now the Giluk school has their final presentation of the nature of reality. That was 1500, 15th century. Does, does that mean that everybody before Tsongkhapa was wrong, right? You know, it, what about all those other people? And so isn't it isn't the same thing now. Like now all the scholars are saying, oh, we figured it out. And I think we have a better chance of being right now because we have a more open approach to Buddhism. Where before in history, the traditions never interacted. Nowadays, they'll, they'll set all the teachings side by side in all the different traditions with people that, that, that understand them in the traditional languages and they look at them like that. They've never done that before. So that's, we, we do have some real great tools now that they never had. But aren't we, can't we just be as guilty of it as everybody else? And, and individually, you know, tens of terms. Well, let me tell you, I'm going to write a book and I'm going to tell everybody what the right answer is. Little old me, out of 2,500 years of Buddhist masters, Tenzin Tarpa has the right idea. Here it is for the world. You know, it's just it's, the whole thing becomes kind of silly, doesn't it? I don't think I'd want to know the whole answer. You know? I don't know. Fascinating, isn't it? I always think, um, Tapa, we, we, we try and always continually look for answers, but, you know, even um, ourselves as humans, we only know about, I think, roughly about 10% of the human brain. You know, the rest, it may just be grey matter, it may be more than grey matter, but, you know, out of that 10% of the, you know, that we know about the human brain, there's a certain number and percentage of people that have came out with great ideas and you know great inventions and great you know things but they're always part of the time that we live in you know we, we're always you know right now we're in a technological you know age where it's just mind-blowing you know what we've currently got but going back the 2000 years or 1500 years or you know i mean things are just a bit different then you know i mean we, we yeah and then, yeah and then yeah, and we're following people from the Bronze Age right now, yeah. right? So now, now I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I mean, the Buddha was a product of that generation. Somehow, the Buddha was like a Mozart, or that you know he seemed to be way way before his time. But nevertheless, yeah, it was the Bronze Age, Sarah? You're muted, Sarah. <laughs> there it goes. Um, there so, so 
I had some thoughts about the unanswered questions versus the questions that are not to be pondered. I think that for me, I think it's just odd because I've studied um, a lot of different traditions in my path to find some peace on a personal level. And they all seem to, at least for me, they all seem to tell you what to think. This is it. This is what you think. And my experience with Buddhism has always been think for yourself, you know, and so uh, the unanswered questions, they don't bother me. I think they're unanswered for a reason. And I think your statement about because it could get in the way of your awakening if you dwell too much on these unponderable questions. And and I, I feel like that, too. I mean, they're fun to think about for a while. And then I'm like, you know, I'm over it. I have other things to do. So I agree. I think that's very true. And you and and you know they always say that you have to discover the truth for yourself but but until you get to a monastery you know we we do debate dialectic debate and and they're they're saying that oh you have to believe all the you know figure out what you what you think but at the end of the day you're supposed to come up with their conclusions. <laughs> at the end of the day after debating They'll say, well, you're not quite, you don't quite have it. It's supposed to be this. So they're quite mm -hmm. more dogmatic than we might think. David? Yeah. Um, to, to what extent do you think, Tarpa, that we can actually know uh, what the what the Buddha actually wrote? Uh, and if that's the case, yeah. if that's the case um, does it matter whether he actually existed or not? And how much certainty can we have of the knowing of the knowing of the knowing? <laughs> yeah, it's just, and, and the hardest thing is even myself, I feel that compulsion, that this pull that I need to have, I need to be anchored somewhere in it all. Even that question brings up that feeling like, where do I? And ultimately, I think the answer is answered by the Buddha himself. And he says that it doesn't matter whether it comes from ancient books, I'll, I'll paraphrase. It doesn't matter if it comes from ancient books or traditions if everybody's doing it. The only thing that matters is that if it's beneficial to your life and it ripens your mind stream, right? So that's how we, that's how we know. We practice it and hopefully we have teachers that we can rely upon that have practiced it and they said, you know, we see our teachers and we think, hey, that guy is doing okay. That gal's doing okay. They must be doing something right. And, and they tell you that they've practiced it and it worked. And then we can do the same. But again, I think it just keeps coming back to that idea is that the Buddha wanted us to practice. He didn't want us to be philosophers. He wanted us to liberate ourselves. And I think at the end of that path of liberation are all those questions that everybody ponders. So I, more and more, that's what I, what I focus on. But the Buddha did give a lot of philosophical information to help the journey. You know, as far as uh, there's other traditions, uh, some Hindu traditions like the, uh, uh, the Hare Krishnas and things who just don't believe in, in, uh, in study at all. The Zen tradition doesn't particularly like study, but the Buddha did. The Buddha wanted his his practitioners to be intelligent, and uh, he put he made great effort in educating us. So there's a balance to it all. One more. 
I was just going to say, I mean, doesn't the fact that we do, if you do the things that the Buddha taught and they actually work, that's the proof of his existence right there, right? I mean, just the yeah. fact that we can follow his teachings and see what they do for our lives. I mean, if to me, that's the proof of, of him. And well what he said. taught, more, more so the Dharma, but. Yeah. Well said, and, getting, and that's the other part of the David uh, alluded to that I didn't answer. Yeah, there there really isn't any proof that the Buddha ever existed. I mean, when we're talking Bronze Age, everything was mud and 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 wood. Everything just you know, there's nothing that lasts from that age. But um, it seems it seems modern scholars seem to think that there's a good chance that he actually existed. The same thing with Christ, right? Many people. I believe that maybe Christ didn't actually exist as a human or, or in a very different way. So you're exactly right. And you're right, the, the proof is in the pudding, right? Is in the practice itself. And of course, that's the practice approach is that put it into practice and see if it works for yourself. Yeah, and, a, and, and not just a teacher, but a Sangha, right? When you join a Sangha, like this incredible song we have here today. And you can look at the qualities of the song and the teacher, and you can, you can decide for yourself, is, you know, is this something that I want? Are these people moving in the right direction? And in my, in my case, through countless experiences, I've met great teachers who had miserable songas, just full of mean people. And I remember just thinking, my first teacher was like that, Lama Tarchin, one of the greatest living uh, masters I ever met. And yet his sangha was just obnoxious. They were mean and, and just cruel people. And then you just wonder what's going on with that. And maybe the fact that some teachers can't pass that on. And, um, and he was clearly a brilliant master. And the thought that we have the kindest sangha in the whole wide world. I've never seen a sangha that's as harmonious as we are. And, you know, what are we doing right? Whatever it is, cross our fingers. It's wonderful. It's almost, um, Tarpa, you know, an example being, you know, Catholic nuns. I mean, I'm not going to go into the story, but we had a friend that worked with uh, the diocese uh, over in Ireland. And I must admit, as soon as I was told, these nuns were the most least Christian, you know, <laughs> just lunatics is what a better way to you know to say i mean it was absolutely mind-boggling what i was being told but anyways um yeah it, it's just pretty it, it gets me thinking though when we think about you know christ or buddha or i mean what happens is these the, these people have came out with great ideas great you know visions um based on the time that they lived what they were facing, what they seen, the unfairness, the inequality, all that sort of thing. And their words have then been taken, turned into organised religion, which is pretty much all about social control. And it's about, you know, controlling people. And when you're talking about that sangha, that's, you know, that, that horror people are not nice people, the, the, the Catholic diocese or anything like that, it's all about a form of control, be it moral control, be it social control. <laughs> And, you know, for me, that's what I like about the Buddha was the Buddha allowed us or allows us to have self-thought. And, you know, the Sangha is the same. It's about self-thought. It's about believing what you 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 what you what learn and what you understand and forming your own opinion. I agree. 
I agree. And the idea, um, the idea, the idea I always had was these great masters, you know, are they able to instill the framework for that not to happen? And, and maybe I'm, uh, I'm an optimist, but I, with SBT, for some reason, I always thought that, that we could do it the right way, that we could instill the right framework the right values and vows and things like that, that uh, that we could somehow get around these problems that the other groups do. And uh, for myself, I painstakingly wrote all the vows that we uh, we have. And especially we just did lay ordination vows. And I was just so meticulous in having so many safeguards in there to stop these things from happening. There's an advantage to uh, visiting and, and studying and living in over 60 monasteries in my life of all the traditions, Christian, Hindu, uh, Buddhist, and that you get to see the problems. And I got to see the problems firsthand of all of them. It's always about power and it's about money. And so uh, I'm a bit of an optimist, but I'm really trying to see if we, if we can put all the safeguards in place when SPT doesn't have that. And I'm quite watchful. You know, when, when rude people come on, I don't think twice of just kicking them out. There's a lot of people in the world we just we just can't mess around, you know. If people don't have basic goodness, there's just no point in it all. Thank you, uh, Brian, that was wonderful. Uh, and, and the idea that it's all a, con a form of control, uh, that's an aspect of it, but I think it's unfair to paint all religion uh, as a, I'm sure there's some really great, uh, priests and rabbis and everything else that are doing good work and they're not so interested about that. But I agree, it can sure be a big part of that. Ms. up did you have your hand up? Were you flattened flies? flies? <laughs> and we're going a little bit late. Does anybody have any more questions? Yeah, David, please. Uh, it's just apropos of nothing. I had a boss who was a nun one time. Not to be repeated. I think we all know that stereotype. And I've, I've had my share of experiences as well. And uh, not just uh, Christian also, in the Buddhist uh, community, Western Buddhist monks are, they have a reputation for being quite difficult. Uh, I think a lot of us know Annie Tenzin Palmo, who wrote Cave in the Snow, right? The famous English uh, monk, nun in the Tibetan tradition. She started a monastery in Dharamsala, and it's gorgeous. When I ordained, we all took a trip there to visit her. And uh, <clears throat> one of her rules is she doesn't allow any Western mon uh, nuns. And, and, and we were there with about 30 people, half nuns, half monks. And one of the nuns raised her hand in, in Western and says, why don't you allow Western nuns? And she said, well, they're just so difficult. <laughs> so, uh, but you didn't hear that from me. But nevertheless, uh, to put it all in the context, we all just have to take a deep breath and let go of this need we have for absolute answers. They're not forthcoming. What is forthcoming is good practice and living together, being together as a Sangha, all of us somehow guiding our way through all this kind of chaos and, and everybody have an opinion about everything. 
<clears throat> and finding our way to, to flourish in our lives to find some peace. And I think it's very, very doable, very, I think we're, we're proving it already. I think the, the, uh, the improvement or the awakening that I see in uh, the members of this song is just ast ast astonishing in just a few years. So whatever we're doing, we're doing something right and let's just keep doing it. And don't let the rest of the world get us down. <clears throat> we're fighting the good fight. We're authentic, we're legit. Just let everybody else worry about all that stuff. Yeah. With that said, why don't we end today with our altruistic affirmation. May all be healthy, may all be prosperous, may all be well, may all be present, free of past regret and future worry. May all abide in constant appreciation, which is a source of great joy and contentment. May all realize their true nature, the true nature of reality, which is awakening. Maybe, maybe it is, we're not quite sure. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. Great seeing you. It was fun teaching this. See you tomorrow for meditation. Bye. Bye. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>